0: The following is a lecture given by William H. Scheide of Princeton University. It it is entitled A 125-Year-Old Librarian. It is the
1: 303rd lecture in the series sponsored by the Book Arts Press and Rare Book School and was given Thursday the 26th of July, 1990. Good evening. Welcome to the second lecture of the third week of 1990 Rare Book School. It's good to see so many of you. There are actually stage seats out here in the hall for those who don't have seats in the room. There are a great many of you, I'm happy to say. Bill Scheide has lectured for us on a number of occasions. It's always a great pleasure to welcome him to Columbia.
0: I don't know how many of you read the title of this lecture. I will read it to you and and tell you that I take full responsibility for it. A 125-year-old librarian, and you can see obviously how true that statement is when you look at me. Uh, And um, I use it because uh, I've been called various names uh, more than once an institution, uh, but I'm more partial to another term that was used to me though it's uh, somewhat more flattering in way namely a fossil uh, <laughs> and I suppose uh, it has to do with the fact that uh, here is a private library with, um, is keeping on its shelves for well had some books for over 125 years but for 66 years had a Gutenberg Bible and uh, I being the owner of it for close to 48 years uh, I don't know if that has any bibliographical significance or not, but I, I think it's a, a sort of an unusual situation, shall we say. And um, so I'm a curiosity anyway, with I'm a fossil, and uh, uh, so you, maybe that's why you're all here, and, and uh, so you can enjoy that part of it. And then to make the thing a little more prosaic, I'll say that uh, the um, 125-year-old librarian, for the purpose of this lecture, really is three-in-ones, uh, which perhaps is, reminds me of a type of oil which will be mentioned again later. But um, uh, so there, we will do it in a way of, of um, taking the three in one, one by one. And I will start with my grandfather. And his name was William Taylor Scheide. His birth occurred during the Mexican War, which in case your history is a little shaky, 1847. Um, and his father who was a great Whig who named some of my grandfather's brothers Henry Clay Scheide who was a Whig and Millard Fillmore Scheide who also was a Whig um, noticed who was running things down there in Mexico and wanted to name his son Zachary Taylor Scheide um, and who was another Whig uh, but in Mama kicked as I understand it and they settled for Taylor but not for Zachary But for that, my name might have been Zachary, since I was obviously named for him. So by an intervention of my great-grandmother, I became William rather than Zachary. At any rate, William Taylor Shardy grew up in Philadelphia. I ask you to picture a schoolroom in the late 1850s. The teacher looks out over the students, sees a boy not paying attention, his head buried in a book. The teacher asks that boy a question. He receives no response. The head doesn't move. The student is oblivious of the teacher, and so the teacher goes around behind him to see what's going on. And he sees that he's reading one of the novels of Sir Walter Scott. And the teacher then says to the class, this boy is learning more from what he's reading than he would if he were listening to me. <laughs> that boy is my grandfather. He's spending his lunch money on books at the age of 10, 11, 12, something of that kind. The story is not more precise, but as it reached me after a two-generation gap, But I can well believe it. I don't know much more about what he was doing other than reading until the city of Philadelphia got a great scare when he was 16 in the year 1863 when General Robert E. Lee marched north from Maryland. He was called up into the army but didn't see any active service because after a while General Lee found it more desirable to go back into Maryland Virginia and the group that my grandfather was in was disbanded. Shortly after, he enrolled in a school for telegraphy. He wanted to become a telegraph operator. After being there for a few months, he went to Pittsburgh and became a railroad telegrapher. He stayed there for a year and a half or so. There's still a book in the Scheide Library inscribed by him, William T. Scheide, September 1865, that proves that our library is at least 125 years old. This is the earliest dated signature of his I've run across. That book is The Chemical History of a Candle by Michael Faraday. It doesn't seem much like telegraphy, but it does remind me that he may have seen a lot of oil barges coming down the Allegheny River, which formed the Ohio with the Monongahela at Pittsburgh. And perhaps he was more interested in illumination than he was in telegraphy. At any rate, he resigned his job with the railroad, and sometime not long after that, went back to Philadelphia and enrolled in the engineering department of the Polytechnic College of Pennsylvania. He graduated in July of 1868. Later that same month he went, I suppose, back to Pittsburgh and then went up the Allegheny and discovered a little town in the remote upper reaches of that river in northwestern Pennsylvania called Titiute in the middle of the oil country. He settled down there and found a job as a clerk in a small firm. For 21 years he pursued the oil business, mainly in oil pipeline transportation, but also now and then as a producer, principally as a producer on the side, I guess, Officially, he was in one company or another engaged in transporting oil by pipeline. It was a rather active and ruthless period. I imagine he was quite busy, but he found time to get married and raise two children. And the building that he worked in and lived in is still there in Tidiot. It's a nice little Victorian building, brick building with uh, white-painted wooden Corinthian columns in the front of it. A very picturesque. The VFW has it now, according to their sign. In the middle of all this though, somehow or other he assembled a library. In 1874, he took the time to write a catalog of it listing something like 1,500 books organized under 11 headings. One, biography. Two, essays and reviews. Three, books of prints. Four, general literature. Five, poetry. Six, law and politics. Seven, novels and tales. Eight, periodicals. Nine, history. 10, science. And 11, travel and adventure. Some of these sections are quite extensive, for example, general literature, novels and tales, and periodicals. The latter had many very remarkable files, including English newspapers, stretching back into the 18th century. He had so many books, in fact, that the people in Tiddy heard about it and said, by any chance, can I borrow one of your books? Some cheap novel, for example, of which he had a fair number, but maybe some more serious work, for all I know. At any rate, there were enough requests so that he printed a little card saying, borrowed from William T. Scheide in such and such a date to be returned one week later. We still have one or two of those cards. But finally, he got tired of it after a few years and said, closing my library, would you please return all of my books to the office where I'm working by such and such a time. Some years later, after he had moved to Titusville, Pennsylvania, he became chairman of the board of the local public library and had a great interest in it in his later life. To go back to his own library, categories such as biography, books of prints, and history very likely served as stimulants and reference for, further, for the further development of the collection. A number of these headings, including biography, essays, reviews, books of prints, novels and tales, periodicals, of history, are now largely dispersed. They indicate that this is essentially a reading library. The first edition was not essential. And I could remember that even as a reading library, many novels and tales were sadly deficient in that they were printed in small Victorian type. I would not want to read them, even with my eyes being much better than they now are. some of the books were certainly noteworthy. In biography, there was Barnes's Editor III, printed in 1688. In general literature, it was Massinger's play, New Ways to Pay Old Debts, 1633. And I would not expect a recent graduate of telegraphy and engineering schools to be reading a 1561 edition of Calvin's Institutes in Latin. Under poetry, My grandfather described Milton's paradise regained in Samson Agonistes as the original edition, which it is, namely 1671. And under law and politics, he listed a collection of the colonial laws of Pennsylvania with the note B. Franklin, printer. History included the German edition of Hartmann Schädel's Nuremberg Chronicle, 1493, probably the first incunable to enter the Shady Library. It's still there. (laughs) Under science was a book called Franklin's Electricity, and travels and adventures included Monard's Joyful News Out of the Newfound World, 1596, Harris's Voyages, 1705, and Patrick Gass's 1808 London imprint of his account of Lewis and Clark's journey. Such titles cl- indicate clearly an interest in books not only for personal reading, but also as cultural artifacts. With a hindsight of over a hundred years, it is possible to discern in this motley array the germs of what were to become the great strengths of the collection in Canabula, apparently represented only by the Nuremberg Chronicle, has become perhaps the strongest category. But in the general literature heading, there were 14 Bibles, including a 1525 Latin Vulgate printed at Lyon, and four English editions all labeled Black Letter of the Geneva version of 1597, 99, 168, and 15. There are also other religious books such as the Latin 1561 Calvin the travel heading with books like Monard's Joyful News would certainly encourage and nourish an interest in Americana, and in general literature a reference work such as Dibdin's Library Companion would provide a likely source of inspiration for future purchases. No written record or oral tradition remains as to where my grandfather acquired his books. I hope it is no insult to you to suggest that few, if any, of them were bought there. Thus attention focuses on bookshops operating in Philadelphia, most likely in the period 1860 to 68. Any of the five following shops could very possibly have supplied him with most of the books in his collection William Brotherhead, Brotherhead Hugh Hamill, William A. Leary, Jr., Moses Pollock, and Joseph Sabin. In addition, there were a number of specialized dealers, such as William Rentowall, a Scotchman featuring Presbyterian books, which suggests the Calvin volume, and the partnership of Ernest Schaefer and Rudolf Corradi, German booksellers, who had a large collection of old German books which suggests the German Nuremberg Chronicle. The store of Peter Doyle, which is known as the, quote, home for black letter scholars of the day, unquote, would be a likely source for the black letter Bibles, including the 1525 Vulgate, which also uses black letter. Four or five other stores would be good possibilities for early English literature, Americana, science, and other books. This seems likely that Philadelphia bookshops in the 1860s could well have supplied the books in my grandfather's 1874 catalog. In 1881, my grandfather's pipeline company had been swallowed by the omnivorous Standard Oil. So his wife and two young children, he moved to Titusville, Pennsylvania, about 15 miles west of Titty to become general manager of the National Transit Company, Standard Oil's pipeline subsidiary in Oil City, 18 miles down Oil Creek, to which he commuted each day by train. He retained his position until 1889, when, 42 years old, in full health, and with every prospect of a bright business future, he resigned. Many years later, I found myself in a Pullman train with a very old man, about 85, who in those days would buy a great hotel and run it, go to directors' meetings and all that kind of thing. And he said to me, I never understood why your grandfather retired down there in Oil City. He really ran things there. I told my father about that and he said, well, that kind of man never would have understood it. When my grandfather retired, he went for a long trip to Europe with one of his business friends. He made the acquaintance of the Florentine book dealer, Leo Oschi. From him they began to buy thousands of medieval and Renaissance documents, wills, contracts, deeds, and other records of how people carried out necessary transactions in former times. On returning home, he taught himself the necessary languages and paleography, sat down and read them, and annotated them. That is, he put them in folders and labeled the outsides as to what the document was and what it was all about. Here we may mention the house he built on Main Street in Titusville. Front door opened on a hall with a parlor on the left and living room to the right, which led at the back to the dining room, which also connected to the hall at its right end. Another door at the left end of the hall at the foot of the staircase led into the library, heavy with bookshelves. But my grandfather evidently had a bad habit. He liked to smoke cigars. My grandmother did not like the smell of cigars, and this situation created a problem. What finally happened was that my grandfather was permitted to build a smoking room under the far end of the library. Actually, it was a new wing of the house with exterior walls on three sides. Swinging glass doors contained the offending smoke, and it had its own gas fireplace and chimney. But now new, and if I understand correctly, more serious problems developed. The combustion in the gas fireplace was not complete, and the updraft in the chimney was defective. A metal ventilator turned by the wind was installed at the top of the chimney to promote a better updraft. In this room, surrounded by Clouds of cigar smoke and partly burned gas. My grandfather would sit for hours reading and transcribing his medieval documents or other books. It is not surprising that he acquired headaches. For relief, he took homemade pills produced by a man whom my father called a quack. As early as his 50s, my grandfather began to have uh, heart trouble. And at the age of 60, he suffered a severe heart attack and died. My father blamed the gas and particularly the headache pills for undermining his basically healthy heart. Upon my grandfather's death, the library passed to my father and one of the first things he did was to compile a new catalog. This reveals that in the 33 years since 1874, the library began to focus more clearly in the direction it has followed ever since. In fact, the classification could be reorganized under the following eight headings, which really are valid to this day. One, manuscripts, two autographs, three Bibles, four Incannabula, five, voyages and travels, six, Americana, seven, books famous in science literature and so forth, and eight reference. Certainly there are important overlaps in these categories. Autographs like manuscripts are certainly written by hand. Many Bibles are written or printed before fifteen one, and are therefore also manuscripts or in It was reports printed in the 15th century of the voyages and travels of Columbus that created Americana. But these categories have nevertheless hardened over the years and still represent the general thrust of the Shady Library in the 20th century. In 1907, there were about 50 manuscripts, excluding the document collection, but including a very passable illuminated 13th century Latin Bible and a nice Wycliffe New Testament in English among the, noz- the dozen more or less in Cannabula, was a good copy of the first edition of Euclid. Enough old books were present to indicate that William T. Shidey's interest in old books as cultural artifacts, which is already represented in his 1874 catalog, had increased. This interest gave a crucial impulse and inspiration to the next stage in the development of the collection. Excuse me, I'll have a drink of water. Um, and I'll then come to my father, whose name was John Hinsdale Shardy, um, born in 1875. One of the earliest of my father's activities, of which I am aware, was photography. Before he went to college, he had a dark room in the basement of the Main Street house. I think his first diploma was from a photographic correspondence school. He remained an avid photographer all his life. In the fall of 1892, he entered a college of New Jersey, now Princeton University, as other Titusville boys had done and were to do. There, sometime during the next four years, he heard a professor or a lecturer say something to the following effect. The two most important events in all modern history are these, the invention of printing and the discovery of America. This remark, remark remained with my father throughout his life and can be called crucial for the development of the incanabula and Americana sections of the library to their present preeminence. After my father's graduation in 1896, he worked until 1903 for the Ohio Oil Company, which later became Marathon Oil Company and is now, I believe, part of USX Corporation. Early in 1904, a good thing and a bad thing happened to him. The good thing was that he married. The bad thing was that he promptly contracted tuberculosis He went with his new wife to the Trudeau Sanatorium in Saranac, New York, gave up smoking, he'd been a pipe smoker, and eventually recovered sufficiently to return to Titusville. But he never recovered the vigor and robustness of his earlier years and never returned to active business. In addition, he soon encountered further tragic events. As noted above, in 1907 his father died suddenly and prematurely, and early in 1909 his wife produced a stillborn daughter, their first child, and she herself died in giving birth. Such was the family background in which my father wrote out his catalog of my grandfather's books and himself became a collector. In 1910, the Titusville Shideys consisted of four people, my grandmother, my father, and his younger sister and her husband, Gertrude Shidey and James H. Caldwell, Jr. In that year, they traveled to England with their car on the Lusitania. One day, my father was engaged in bibliographical research at the Bodleian Library in Oxford, probably in Duke Humphrey's room, when there was a disturbance and he looked up to see Theodore Roosevelt being given a tour of Oxford highlights. The ex-president had just finished a trip through Africa, and most recently had attended the funeral of Edward VII. At any rate, this story shows that in 1910, my father was already seriously interested in old books. At least three important purchases marked the year 1911. Luther's 1522 September testament, Eliot's Indian Bible with an interesting provenance from a headmaster at Eton, um, and, um, and, the, and the 1649 Cambridge platform, which is the earliest English-American imprint we have. My father was now frequenting the New York book world, both dealers, for example, Lathrop C Harper, and auctions, where the gargantuan operations of people like Folger and Huntington terrified him. Modestly, he secured a half-leaf of a Gutenberg Bible and thought to himself, I am sure that will be all I will ever be able to acquire of that. Trips to New York also afforded opportunities to become better acquainted with Miss Harriet Hurd to whom he had been introduced when she had made a trip to Titusville to visit a friend who was an aunt of my present wife. Miss Hurd and my father were married in 1913 and I followed along the next year. At about that time, he designed the family book plate with the inscription, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free, surrounded by a keystone border. In this way, he combined what had become the three greatest strengths of the library. Bibles, the quotation is from John 8:32. Th- 32. In canabula, printing in editions of thousands of copies would allow falsehood, but would also allow truth to become known to more people than had previously been possible. An Americana, possibly he was thinking of Francis Scott Key's chauvinistic phrase, the land of the free, uh, and perhaps even narrowing it to his own beloved Pennsylvania with the keystone border. Great books continued to arrive in the library, such as a fine copy of the first Geneva Bible, 1560, the beginnings of a fine collection of 16th century Mexican imprints, and an 1859 edition of The Origin of Species. I would also say that the main bulk of the large English printed Bible collection dates in this time. In later years, my mother told me that when she began to understand the growing significance of the library, she lamented to her husband that he had to go to a safe deposit vault in a bank to enjoy his books. Why don't you get a safe, she asked. So he did, installing it in a corner of the smoking room. We still use it. Because my childless aunt and uncle spent much time away from Titusville, Due to his oil business in Illinois and Oklahoma, my father with his wife and son continued to live with his mother in the main street house in Titusville. But when my grandmother died in 1921, a move became necessary. My aunt and uncle had essentially returned to Titusville, but more importantly, my grandmother had reasonably enough decided that since my father had inherited the library, my aunt should inherit the house. As luck would have it, a very commodious house and yard became available in a few months on the other side of the same city block on Washington Street. My father bought it and immediately began extensive renovations, principal one being the addition of a large and fireproof library. Moving of books and family to the new quarters on Washington Street occurred in December 1922. My aunt and uncle moved into the Main Street house early in 1923 after accomplishing a few renovations of their own. The library is now clearly headed into its greatest period. Even the house alterations and editions of 1922 did not stop my father from buying a set of four Shakespeare folios, and in early 1924 the momentum reached a peak with a trip of Dr. S.W. Rosenbach to Titusville to deliver personally the Brindley, Ives, Ellsworth copy of a 42-line Bible commonly ascribed to Johann Gutenberg. The implications of that trip were unmistakable. Though my father was one of the most unassuming and modest of men, he embarked boldly and irrevocably upon the creation of a great library and the responsibilities thereunto appertaining. Great book after great book was added. I will mention a few highlights. As to manuscripts, he acquired in 1931 the only complete Wycliffe Bible in this country, a manuscript of about 1400, and in 1938 the Blickling Homilies, a collection of sermons in Anglo-Saxon, the only Anglo-Saxon book in this hemisphere. He thought of it in one way as a piece of Americana, a means of tracing the roots of H. L. Mencken's the American language a little deeper into the past. In 1935, he was inspired to send an expedition of two men to Egypt in the hope of smuggling some biblical papyri out of that country as other people such as as Chester Beatty had done. They were able to make contact with a seller and did indeed succeed in smuggling the leaves out of Alexandria while Mussolini's Ethiopian War was going on. They turned out to be a section of the Greek text of Ezekiel of about AD 200. My father was a little disappointed that they were not New Testament, but reconciled himself to the publication of the shiny biblical papyri Ezekiel. If now we turn from manuscripts to incunabula, we may brazenly start by looking only at imprints uh, dating probably before 1460. Of these, there were at least six of which three are fragments, and three relatively complete. The latter are the 42-line Bible, a 1455 indulgence, and the unique Latin calixtus bull against the Turks, dating most probably from 1456. The smallest fragment is of the 36-line Bible, the next largest from a Donatus Latin grammar, in the early stage of the 42-line Bible type, suggesting a date of about 1453. And the largest, about three quarters of a double leaf of the 1457 Psalter, with two of the famous colored initials. There's also an interesting and small collection of so called Custer fragments, but it is doubtful if any of them were printed by the legendary Dutch printer before 1460. Later important in Canabula it were uh, 1465 Subiaco Lactantius, one of the first books printed in Italy the Holford copy of the Fuston Schaeffer 1462 Bible, a gorgeous book, a Catholicon dated 1460 but with a late watermark, a 1472 Folino Dante, one of the first editions of Dante, and four Caxton's including a complete 1481 Mirror of the World, and a 1477 Dixon Sayings with several library stamps reading British Museum Duplicate. There there are, of course, many first editions of ancient authors, for example, Caesar's commentaries. Here we should acknowledge the participation of other members of the family. In 1924, my mother's brother, George F. Hurd, a successful New York lawyer, presented an early 14th century manuscript of English statutes, beginning with Edward I's confirmation of the Magna Carta. It is a book of exceptional interest, beautifully illuminated, of Durham origin and a worthy companion to the Wycliffe Bible and the Blickling homilies. Then my father's sister, my aunt Gertrude S. Colwell, on two Christmases around 1930, presented a beautifully illuminated 1466 fuston Schaeffer cicero de Ophicis and a Wendelin of Spire Virgil of about 1471. Those are three munificent gifts. Turning now to Americana, we may begin with manuscripts and autographs. Among the first that should be mentioned is the Lexington Alarm, undoubtedly copied on the morning of April 19th, 1775, as a horseman was resting to carry the new copy on a fresh horse to the next town, and thus spread the news eventually all the way to Georgia that the American Revolution had begun. There's a fine series of letters by the 17th century missionary to the Massachusetts Indians, John Eliot, an interesting letter of the Quaker governor, William Penn, dealing with the problem of repelling an invasion How do Quakers repel invasions? Well, read William Penn on the subject. Uh, A fine Washington letter when he was almost in despair about the outcome of the Revolution. A complete speech draft in Lincoln's hand entitled, Sectionalism, for use in the Fremont-Buchanan campaign of 1856, practically prophesying the Civil War, I might say. And finally, the telegraph and letter books of General Grant covering the period from late March to April 9th, 1865, and including his autographs of the surrender terms of the Army of Northern Virginia. The imprints are heavy in Massachusetts sermons, but there's a Massachusetts laws of 1660, an Eliot's Indian grammar for anyone who wants to read his Bible, first Bible printed in the Western Hemisphere, and a Williamsburg edition of Washington's Journal, 1755, I think. Perhaps the most exciting piece of Americana is one of the original printed broadsides, the Declaration of Independence. The Mexican imprints go back to 1543. The category great books is a convenient catch-all for miscellany. Presumably we have already mentioned some great books, for example, the Bible and Shakespeare, but now other first editions should be added, such as Milton's Paradise Lost, Goethe's Faust, and other literary works. Science is proliferated, headed by first editions of Copernicus, Galileo, and Newton, as well as Darwin and numerous others. Straddling literature and religion comes a very great copy of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Our unadorned but uniquely spotless first edition was our contribution to the exhibition, Printing in the Mind of Man, (coughs) held in London in 1963. Turning to religion proper, we find the 16th century well-represented with Luther's Theses, Calvin's Institutes, 1536, and a March 1547, Edward VI prayer book, as well as presentation copies of a Zwingli tract in a Luther 1541 Bible. Here it should be belatedly, only, yes, the end of that paragraph. And now I've started a different subject. Here it should be belatedly remarked that until the death of my grandmother, I do not believe that either my father or my grandfather employed any person as secretary or librarian. But in late 1921, The new burdens of estate work and details of house acquisition, alterations, and moving necessitated the employment of such a person, a World War I widow who remained until 1930, by which time she had remarried. To replace her came a young graduate of that year from the College of Worcester in Ohio, Minor Reese, who remained until after my father's death, when she eventually left to become assistant editor of the Jefferson Papers and married Samuel S. Bryan, Jr. We will hear about her again later. My father was concerned about publishing a facsimile of his unique Latin, Calixtus Bull, and was developing plans with his librarian, Minorisi, for her to do research in New York that would enable the project to move forward. Worried, as were many people, about the war in September 1942, he developed a case of flu. The attending doctor prescribed a newly discovered wonder drug, sulfa. My father was duly dosed with it, But during the next few days, he was wracked by frightful and unstoppable bouts of very severe hiccups. The doctors were mystified. Possibilities of allergies or side effects of drug use did not occur to them. One morning at about 6 a.m., he suffered a severe heart attack and died. I have since read of a case involving a man who was similarly afflicted but did not die directly by his being allergic to sulfa drugs. But the hiccups my father had could well have been enough to have disturbed the healthiest heart and dislodged something sufficiently to clog a crucial coronary artery. I'm convinced that he died because of the hiccups caused by an allergy to sulfa drugs. And so I'll have another drink of water at that point. And so at last I come to myself, the third of the three. My first eight years were spent at the Main Street house in Titusville, Pennsylvania. My room looked out over the smoking room wing, and its chimney was a prominent feature. Probably my first recollection of anything to do with the family library was fright, when during stormy nights, the metal ventilator at the top of the chimney squeaked when the wind whirled it around. I do not remember the smoking room without the safe in its corner. On top of the safe was a bronze replica of the Venus de Milo. We still have it. One morning on looking through the glass door, we espied a live owl perched on Venus's head. I forget how it was removed. As you can see, at least in this story, that chimney was the contributing cause of my grandfather's death, my fright, and the intrusion of an owl. In those days, my father had books mostly inherited from my, from my grandfather that needed repair. To this task would come periodically a most picturesque old gentleman, Mr. Edwin C. Bell, who lived in a ramshackle house built of overlapping vertical black clabberds or planks situated on the edge of town. Mr. Bell had had a varied career, most of which I have forgotten, but he knew about people such as William Caxon, and and he had sequestered for posterity many mementos of the early oil days, in particular hundreds of glass plate photographic negatives dating back as far as 1860, a unique record of the beginning of a major industry. He was a small old man with a long white hair and, lo- and a white beard. Perhaps he looked like a gnome, but per- because I was even smaller, I never thought of him as one. He spread out newspapers on the nice rugs, upon which he placed pots of whitish paste, and went to work. I watched, fascinated. Naturally, I was also fascinated by the construction work, particularly the library building that occurred in 1922. The principal bricklayer, Ali Nu, showed me how to lay a brick, and I laid one all by myself. There were stone carvers hammering out gargoyles, imitation of New College, Oxford, and any number of exciting things going on. My father read Scott and Cooper to me, but on my own, I preferred Jules Verne. My grandfather acquired more readable copies of the latter author. My mother had a lovely singing voice, and if her life had been a little different, might have had something of a musical career. She would sing to me when putting me to bed, and when she finished, I would say, again, according to her, that was my first word. One time, we were at the old Chelsea Hotel in way pre-casino Atlantic City, and some musicians were playing uh, up on a balcony overlooking the lobby. When they stopped, I broke into frightful wailing and yelling. This, to put it mildly, embarrassed my parents, who hurried me out of the lobby, up the elevator, into our room, and into the closet, where I screamed until I ran out of breath. Years later, apparently I was about a year and a half old, although I remember it well. When they asked, why did you yell so, I would always answer truthfully and immediately, because they stopped playing. Those of us old enough to remember such things can testify that a phenomenon of the 1920s was the radio. One program I listened to was the New York conductor Walter Damrosch, discoursing on Wagner's Ring the Nibelungs. My father knew about it and may also have listened occasionally. In the spring of 1927, he received an auction catalog announcing the coming sale of the autograph orchestral score of Das Rheingold, the first of the four ring operas. Nothing like that had ever entered the Shady Library, but he discussed it with his 13-year-old son and decided to enter a bid. I did not suggest a figure. He was rather surprised when he got it, and I inclined to think it was a bargain. It's the only Wagner opera score in this country. My father introduced me to several of his book friends. I knew Belle de Costa Green at the Pierpont Morgan Library, Dr. Rosenbach, and the great bibliographer Seymour de Ricci, who, who, doing a trip we made to Europe in 1933, gave us lunch in his Paris apartment and showed me and my father's specimens of 15th century type dug out of the river at Lyon. He gave a P to my father, which we still have, and then took us to the Bibliothèque Nationale, into which, as far as I know, my father had never before penetrated and showed us the famous dated rubricators inscriptions by Heinrich Kramer in one of their 42-line Bibles. On the same trip, I met Leo Olschke, my grandfather's old friend in Geneva. But as we drove by Eton College in England, my father motioned toward the library and said wistfully, there's a Gutenberg Bible in there. He was wistful because he had no way of getting in to see it. By 1935, when I was at Princeton and immersed in Beethoven, in my opinion, a justifiable expression of youthful exuberance and ripening. He discussed with me a Goldschmidt catalog, offering six leaves of sketches of Beethoven's Hammerklavier Sonata, Opus 106. We got it. In 1940, I received an MA degree in Musicology from Columbia, right here, and then taught music at Cordell for two years. My father's sudden death brought my family and myself back to Titusville to assume an only grandchild's responsibilities as executor and trustee during the war years. My defective eyesight twice disqualified me for military service. In 1946, I moved my family to Princeton, New Jersey, leaving my mother in the library in Titusville to start and direct the Bacharia group. I discovered what I still believe, that Bach was about as well-known as Shakespeare would be if there were no theater. When I compared myself to my father, I noted that I had suffered from no disease, such as his tuberculosis, that my uncle and and my aunt and uncle had both died, and I was the sole beneficiary of her income, as well as a good share of my father's. I wanted to make a contribution of my own. This took my mind off the library for several years. If I received book catalogs, I probably threw them away. I do not remember. First one I do remember was about 1954, from H.P. Krauss, oddly enough. offering a proof sheet of the 42-line Bible. I telephoned and was of course told it had been sold to George Poole of Chicago. It ended up in Bloomington, Indiana. I said, how come? Don't you know I own one? But Mr. Scheide, you haven't been buying books lately. So I got over that and shortly bought a 1459 Durandus and a few other books in the 50s and carried them to Titusville. In 1959, my mother died at the age of 86 thus severing my last family link with Titusville. We spent the summer sorting the contents of the house and library, disposing of what we did not want by gift or sale, and moving the residue to Princeton. A room for the books was made available in the Firestone Library at the university. One incident that touched me deeply was a motor trip, and quite a long motor trip it was, and still is, Um, by John and Joe Fleming, a late book dealer from New York who started with Dr. Rosenbach to see the library before it was broken up, as it had been in the days of Dr. Rosenbach, my father, and John's apprenticeship. And a nice epilogue to a sad and difficult year was the return of Minor Bryan to the library, where she remained until her death early in 1985. She was succeeded by Janet Ng, the present librarian, William Stoneman, who's present present today. But to go back to 1959, the university could not be expected to offer us really adequate space Conditions were unreasonably crowded. There was no humidity control, and bindings were in great danger of disintegrating. So a plan for financing was arranged, a convenient location, the library roof discovered, and the university made its architect available, so at the present room, adjacent to the university's own special collections, and subject to the same degree of security and humidity control, could be constructed. Project this project was finished in 1964. In it were installed parts of the library brought in 1959 from Titusville, steel shelving and cabinet work, carved wood panels, stained glass windows. The present room thus recreated, to a certain extent, some of the atmosphere of the Titusville room. But with its two exhibition cases and adjoining offices set off with glass panels, is adapted to other uses than were relevant in Titusville. Thirty-one years ago I went on my first book trip, the Groyer Club trip to England in 1959. I will never forget the trip to Oxford. A busload of Grolierites driving up Cap Street and the bus itself squeezing through the arch into the very courtyard of the old Bodleian to be welcomed by a crowd of waiting dignitaries. I have never seen a bus there before or since. But I thought of my father when we were welcomed so cordially by the headmaster of Eton, Robert Burley, and I was allowed to finger the Johannes Fogel binding of their 42-line Bible, so similar except in color to my own how he would have loved to have been there. The way that the great European libraries have been opened up to book lovers in recent years is something that both my father and grandfather would have found unbelievable. The Griller Club started it. Who will ever forget Leonardo's original Codex Atlanticus spread naked on a table in the Ambrosian Library in Milan for the fondling of the crudest book lover, and they were fondling in a disgusting manner. I saw. I saw them do it or the dinner in the Bavarian State Library in Munich against a backdrop of books whose brilliance is positively blinding. Seeing such things has become one of the greatest privileges that a bibliophile can possess. Though I believe the three of us were agreed on several fundamentals of the collection, each of us exercised individual quirks and preferences. My grandfather liked newspaper files and medieval documents. My father stuck to the importance of Gutenberg's invention and Columbus's discovery. I got interested in music. As mentioned, my father responded, and now the musical autographs, including Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, Schubert, and Wagner, are the crown of the general autograph collection. But I would say that is the nearest thing to a new direction that I have given to the library. (coughs) I have made additions to most of the earlier categories, but the principal ones have been in manuscripts of Incannabula, strength building on strength, as I have heard said before. I will mention what I think are the main ones. In manuscripts, I've supplemented the Blickling homilies with an Anglo-Saxon will of about 970. It's a fascinating document in which which the testatrix asks that Edwin the priest be freed, indicating, among other things, that she had a priest who was her slave. Another manuscript I would like to mention is a pocket-sized vellum codex in Coptic uncial letters of Matthew's gospel of probably the fifth century. I wish my father could have seen it it would have helped to satisfy his wish for an early New Testament text. From a musical point of view, it is also significant in that it contains a very early text of the Gloria in both Greek and Coptic. In addition to the well-known words, we praise thee, we bless thee, we adore thee, we glorify thee, there is added in the margin, we sing hymns to thee. The final manuscript is a nicely illuminated Old Testament an alternating Hebrew and Aramaic, written in the 14th century, probably in Germany. I've already mentioned the 1459 Durandus, which belongs to that exclusive group of Incunabula before 1460. To that should be added a nice double-leaf fragment of a Donatus in 36-line type. But of course, the ideal purchase has been the two great soldiers of 1457 and 1459, which occurred in 1971. Neither is complete, but both go way beyond being merely respectable books. There are now two copies of the double-leaf 72, 79, my father, is the one my father had, so it's duplicated in this, in the comparatively complete copy. When asked what is my favorite book, I usually reply, the 1457 Psalter. It is really majestic. These four items bring the number of German imprints before 1460 to nine. Another incunable of no mean importance is Caxton's Recule of the Histories of Troy, very possibly the first book printed in English about 1473, but undated. Well, that, with that, I'll bring my list to a close. Growing up with, inheriting, and developing such a collection has created for me feelings of humility, responsibility, and love. As Milton said in his great Areopagitica, 1644, a copy of which is in the library, quote, a good book is the precious lifeblood of a master spirit, embalmed and treasured up on purpose to a life beyond life great deal has been composed and could be added upon that noble theme. But perhaps I'd better end with a controversial word. From my paradox is worth more to the state than all the books in all its libraries. Thank you.
1: I have a story to tell. In 1986, we took a film crew of six people to Princeton to do most of the filming for a videotape that most of you have seen, How to Operate a Book. It begins with what became known on the set as the ice cream sandwich, but which Mr. Scheide thinks of as his fifth-century gospel. (laughs) We spent most of two days at Princeton. Janet Ng, then the librarian of the Shady Library, was on vacation. So uh, the librarian on duty was Bill Scheide. The last scene of how to operate a book is by far the most complicated in the whole videotape technically. You may remember that Gary Foss comes from behind an alcove in the Shady Library, comes out and talks to you for a while, moves to a seat and sits down and talks about the responsibilities of librarians. It's all in one take, and Gary became celebrated as Gary Take 37 Frost (laughs) because of that single scene. It took 37 takes. We didn't finish until 7 o'clock, and Bill Scheide waited and waited and waited for us to finish. It was Thanksgiving Eve. (laughs) We've always been very grateful. A great many things are now about to happen. To begin with, and perhaps uh. Most importantly, there is a bar in room 502, the press room. There's also a lot of open printer's ink because we've been etching, engraving, and dry pointing in there for most of the week. Let us please agree that if you put your elbow in printer's ink, this is because you wanted to. And because and because you know that printers ink does not wash off any more than ink washes off a printed page so be careful there there'll be another bar in front of the mailboxes at the other end of the hall in room 503 this away, Joe Studham from Electo Editions the celebrated publisher of the Banks Florilegium and other monumental and splendid books will be, uh, for the next half hour or so, I hope, showing Electo's part of Electo's latest project, which is a reissue from the original plates of engravings after Bodmer of Prince Maximilian's famous trip to what we now think of as the Midwest in the 1830s. The prints are colored à la poupée with extensive additional hand coloring, and they're great fun to look at. There is a new electronic database, a new electronic bulletin board, called Ex Libris, which was invented at ALA last month and which came into being thanks to the good offices of Peter Graham of Rutgers last week, in which rare Book librarians and other interested people who have access to some sort of electronic mail system can chatter away at each other, which you may also do. That's set up in 508, so if you want to see electronic mail in action, rare book style, please go stick your head in. The History of the Book course that Alice Schreyer and Peter Van Wingen are teaching this week uses as part of its appliances a vast array of Book Arts Press teaching artifacts. They are all in room 506, and if you haven't taken a look or if you're a stranger to these parts and want to take a look please do so. That's down the hall, this way Finally, there are, as you can see if your sight lines are good, two exhibitions in the hallway. One, celebrating the first 300 Book Arts Press Lectures, and a second, called Ourselves Observed, which those of you who were here last year will have seen before, and chronicling some of the activities of the Rare Book Program of the School of Library Service over the past nearly 20 years. 300 and counting, the exhibition of Book Arts Press posters and Book Arts Press lectures is accompanied by a catalog, and one will be forced upon you as you leave to go out in the hallway to take a look at it. Many of you know that the university has decided to close the School of Library service and to phase out its programs over the next several years. The rare book programs have been invited to stay at Columbia, and that is certainly an option. It is, however, only an option, and we are vigorously pursuing other and very attractive ones. The coda to 300 and counting is some of my further sentiments on this subject, but I hope you will all rest assured that it is my very firm intention, indeed, that the programs will be reestablished over the next several years in a place that will make them stronger than ever. Thank you for coming.